Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. We'll see how it all goes. You may need a refresher course in what we've talked about so far in the book of John. And you'll have to... um, Forgive me if I seem to stumble over some things a little bit. You ever hear a preacher or a Sunday school teacher say they got a new Bible? I know Mark's done it once or twice that he's, you know, breaking in a new Bible. I got this new Bible, and uh, it doesn't have any commentary, any notes, any cross notes, any, any, any nothing. There's no cross references, no nothing, no even headings of sections, um, which is slightly a downside, slightly what I wanted. It's got this... Um, extremely wide margin for note-taking. It's called the note-taker's Bible. So I told Mark, that one of the main reasons I got this, you know, going through Ezekiel and so on, we, I, have all the, I have like a file folder full of all the different studies, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to make a Mark Robinson commentary of Ezekiel. So I wish I was here for all of Isaiah, but um, I'll have to see if I can obtain those notes so that I can plug them in here, but uh, just trying to do that. So, so far, we are up to verse 35. Okay, by my counting, we are up to verse 35 in John chapter 1. We spent quite a while talking about Christ's deity. Okay, the word was God. And a lot of the book of John is just incredible showing the deity of the Messiah to a Jewish audience, to a Jewish perspective. Um, We're going to also see here in our study tonight that the book of John, although it is written from a Jewish perspective, Much of it is in regard to Jewish feasts, Jewish holidays, Jewish people, the Jewish perspective of the Messiah, but it's also to a worldwide audience. So we're going to see kind of like a parallel here between these two points of view, Um, especially tonight. I'm excited about our study tonight. But part of our our study uh, most recently dealt with John the Baptist and his encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees that came uh, from Jerusalem Uh, where John was, to where John was in Bethabara beyond Jordan, in verse 28, where he was baptizing. And they come to him, and they ask him all these different questions, and he gives them answers. He responds to them. I don't want to rehash too much because we have to move forward if we're going to um, get anywhere. But to pick up where we left off, okay, it says in verse 28, these things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. John was baptizing by the River Jordan. Okay? He was baptizing in the River Jordan. And the things that transpired, I believe from verse 
15. Um, okay, let's see here. I want to make sure that I get it right. Okay. Verse 19. Okay, verse 19 begins this, this questioning that, that John has by the Pharisees and, and, and Levites that were sent from Jerusalem, priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Um, so that's day one. I want us to keep the, that in our minds. This questioning, verse number, f did I say f 19 through 28 is day one. Okay, it'll help us to kind of iron out in our minds when some things are happening. We already talked about verses 29 through 34. That was our most recent study was John, 29, John 1, 29 through 34. But verse 29 says, the next day. The next day John seeth Jesus. Okay, so that's day two. He sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, the, the unique thing about John is in many cases, it, it's, we have the synoptic gospels, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called the Synoptic Gospels because they kind of coincide, they harmonize. Many events that are in the book of Matthew are also parallel in the book of Luke and, and, and Mark. And John is kind of in a class of its own. It has a different perspective on all of those things. And there's many events in the book of John that are not listed in the other three, okay? Some unique events that are exclusive to the book of John, giving us a perspective on some things that happened in the ministry of Jesus. And here, when we read about the account of John the Baptist, we get an additional perspective that's not necessarily um, looked at in this fashion from the other Gospels, okay? So day one, he's being questioned. Day two, he sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Now skip down to verse 30, 35, okay? This is where we're starting. We're starting in verse 35, John chapter 1. And it says, again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. This is day three. Okay? Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. This would be better rendered in the, wor in the word order of the original Greek. If you look into the Greek, which um, it's all Greek to me, okay? I know enough to be dangerous with Hebrew, and I know enough to be, I, I don't even, Greek, I don't even, I took a semester, okay? If that tells you anything. But I can tell, okay, that it says in the Greek, the next day, again, John was standing. Okay, so it, it's, it's a little less, I don't know, difficult to understand what's being said in the original word order. The next day, again, John was standing. Okay, so this is day three. And let's look down through, well, let's just look at verse, uh, uh, well, here, let's look at what I have here. Next day, John, again, John was standing. It is stating that, on day one, John was questioned by the scribes and Pharisees, verses 19 through 28. On day two, he sees Jesus for the first time and proclaims him to be the Lamb of God, verses 29 through 34. And um, verse number 36. Now, by the way, it says here that two of John's disciples were standing with him, okay? Not necessarily Jesus' disciples yet, but they will be. And these two disciples that are standing by John, when he says... Behold, uh, the Lamb of God, in verse number 36, it's likely John himself and Andrew. Okay, because we're going to read on further about this and see what, what takes place. So verse 36, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, 
Behold the Lamb of God. On day three, John, standing by two of his disciples, again sees Jesus and proclaims that he is the Lamb of God. We have this twice in a row on two different days that this occurred. It's a unique perspective because when we think about it, we think, okay, one and done. One unique occasion where John calls and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Here we have it, him saying it twice on two separate days. Uh, and John's two disciples are standing there right next to him when he says that. And the two disciples, verse number 37, heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And like I said, likely these two are John and Andrew. Okay, are we all on the same page so far? Questions, comments? I feel like we're going through this at lightning speed compared to what we have been. So I'm just trying to balance that a little bit, make sure I'm not going too fast. Okay, so verse number 38 it says, Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? This is interesting. This is the very first words of Jesus in the book of John. He sees Andrew and John walking after him. He turns around and he says, What seek ye? What are you, what are you looking for? They said unto him, Rabbi, now, if, if, if this was like an entirely by Gentiles, for Gentiles context, they wouldn't have called him rabbi. They would have just said teacher. You know, there's this Gentile, uh, not Gentile idea, but it's, we have the idea of the Messiah and the Savior. Now, in a mostly Gentile church context, you hardly ever hear the word Messiah, ever, unless it's like on a Christmas play, you know? And that just so detaches it from the Jewish origins. Here, if we look at this book, and by the way, you know, the book of, of, of John is lauded for being the gospel to the whole world. Now, I'm not saying that that's not true. It has that emphasis many, many, many times to a worldwide audience beyond the Jews. But the context is still just so Jewish. It's hard to get away from, and it's neat to see that context. So Andrew and John, these two disciples, when they see Jesus, they're, they're, they're following him, and Jesus says, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi. Now, there's two things that I want us to notice here. I want us to notice the word rabbi, and I also want us to notice the phrase that comes after the word rabbi. Okay, this is in the book of John, written by John. John himself writes, this is not something that the translators added in, this parenthetical statement, which is to say, being interpreted, master. Okay, so there's a couple of different times that we're going we're gonna to see this. If you look on your notes, just even, you know, blur your eyes a little bit. And uh, I don't know if that's a good thing to do. I have to ask uh, Dr. Bird if that's not good. But if you look at the page, you can see that there's some instances where I've used another color. Okay, I used this kind of orange, orangey kind of color. I don't know, burnt, burnt sienna, whatever it is that you want to call it. But there's multiple occasions where John uses this phrase, being interpreted, this phrase means this, okay? And in most occasions, it's a Hebrew word or an Aramaic word that's being described. Um, and here, John's audience that he's planning on this book, this gospel account going to, is not necessarily solely a Jewish audience. He's planning on people reading this, and the Holy Spirit, as he inspired John to write this, is not necessarily planning on just a Jewish audience. He's planning on an audience that doesn't know what rabbi means. Okay? 
So it's just, it's neat to see this. And when we get all the way to John 3.16, boy, that is a loaded situation. Because Jesus himself is talking to a ruler in Israel about how being born again is not just a New Testament concept. And yet, the most well-known verse in all of the, you know, scripture, to us anyway, uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so on and so forth. That was given to a Jewish man named Nicodemus, for God so loved the world. And I think that that, in a nutshell, shows you the cultural context of the Bible and how it fits in. He's not saying you need to be Jewish, you need to be circumcised. Okay, that's a false gospel. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to follow the law in order to be saved. It's, it's all Christ and nothing else. But the context was Jewish at its inception. So here we see Rabbi. Um, okay, so, and they ask, where dwellest thou? They ask him, Rabbi, where, where do you live? Where are you dwelling? Have you ever wondered where Rabbi comes from? Somebody, without looking forward in your notes, I don't know, maybe you guys have skimmed ahead, okay? How do you say thank you very much in Hebrew? Todah Rabbah. That's where it comes from, okay? Todah means thank you. Rabbah means many. Many or much. Okay, so you're literally saying something along the lines of thanks very much or thanks many. Okay, you can just say todah if you're not very happy or very pleased with whatever. But if somebody does something really nice for you, todah rabah, many, much thanks, okay? Um, and that's where the idea of, of, of rabbi came from, okay? Rav in Hebrew can mean many, much, or great. So rabbi, or rabbi, as it is in the Greek, okay? It's, it's written in Greek, spelled out rabbi, literally means my great one, my master, okay? It being interpreted, it has the idea of master. Um, and it's, it's, it's like, you know, great one, master. And that's what they ask him. They say, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? And he says unto them, second phrase of Jesus in the, in the book of John, come and see. Can you just imagine, can you put yourself in, in, in their shoes, okay? They're, they're linked together with John. John is preaching that somebody is coming who's coming uh, after me, is preferred before me. His, his shoe latch that I'm not worthy to unloose. He's coming, get ready. And John, boy, if you, if you can just imagine the preaching of John the Baptist, I mean, we would all probably, you know, cower, okay? I mean, he was probably like a George Whitfield kind of guy. Didn't need a microphone, not that they had him back then, but you can just imagine. He was just a very bold and uh, wild man, okay, preaching the gospel, uh, the coming of the Messiah. And his two disciples, you have to know that they're thinking, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? I can't wait, you know, to be able to see, you know, who he's talking about because this, this preaching is amazing and what he's talking about, who's coming. So then they see him, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And they go and they start walking after him, and he says, What are you, what are you looking for? <laughs> you know, what are you seeking? Can you just imagine, Rabbi, uh, where, where, do you, where do you dwell? And he says unto them, Come and see. He didn't push them away. The Bible says that who the Father gives to him, he will in no wise cast out. We don't ever, ever, ever need to feel like we can't come to him. 
And that's something that Satan greatly wants us to do. Okay? As Christians, he's already lost the, he's already lost the war, okay? Satan has. But he wants to win as many little battles as he possibly can in our lives. I heard the phrase, and I hope I can get this right, that Satan wants to convince you that, um, oh, boy, I just, I, just, I just lost it. He wants you to think that your sin is too great or too willing or too often to even bother coming to Christ to ask for forgiveness, you know, to have that fellowship restored. Satan doesn't want you to know that 1 John 1, 9 exists. He wants you to cower in your just, you know, I mean, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. We're supposed to be broken before God, but we're supposed to be broken before God. We're not supposed to be broken in a corner saying, I can't even come to him. These two that came to Jesus, you know, the woman that was, you know, caught in adultery, what did, what did he do with her? He said, go and, and, and sin, don't, sin no more, neither do I con condemn thee. Um, I just see this um, really unique encounter. I, I, I want to jump into this paragraph and be able to see what it was really like, you know, what, what, what happened. And uh, there was an old, well, not an old preacher, but an evangelist, one of those guys that talks really fast. And he said, he preached a message that he wants to, uh, he wants to, uh, he, he, has, he wants to see in heaven on like a projector screen the looks on all these different people's faces when different stuff happened. So his message was called the looks on their faces. I don't know. But um, I would like to see the looks on John and Andrew's face when they, when they talked to Jesus and just how amazing this would be. They came and saw where he dwelt, okay, verse 39. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And that's basically 4 p.m., okay? It's getting ready to be quitting time at work, okay? I don't know what day of the week this necessarily was, but it was around 4 p.m. in the afternoon. It was, you know, the sun starts going down, and so they, um, they abode with him that day. For one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, in verse 40. It says, he first findeth his own brother Simon, okay, so this is speaking of Andrew, one of the two disciples of John that became a disciple of, of, of Jesus. Andrew goes and he finds his brother Simon, and he saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Okay, so John puts that in there for his non-Jewish audience to be able to understand a Jewish concept. And he brought him to Jesus. Okay, so Simon uh, is found by Andrew. Andrew says, Simon, we found him. We have found the Messiah. And Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, verse 42, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now, how many of you... I, I, sometimes when you, when you read this and you hear about, you know, Peter and so on, it's kind of confusing because he's got three names, okay? We have Simon, we have uh, Peter, and we have this Cephas or Cephas, okay? And I looked it up, it's, it's pronounced Cephas. Um, anyway, we'll get into that in a little bit here because we're going to go into a whole section of what in the world does Peter's name mean? And we're going to talk about... Matthew 16 and all of that, I figured it would be a good time to, to look at some of those things. So who was John's audience? And I already touched on this. Jews and Greeks comprising a worldwide audience. 
This is seen in John 1, 1, John, uh, 10, uh, John 1, 10 through 12, and also verse 17. This is also being uh, seen in the phrase, being interpreted. So we kind of get this picture that it's a very Jewish thing, but it is for an audience that is beyond just the Jewish people that so often were comprising that area in Judea. It is for a worldwide audience that does not know inherently the concepts of Judaism, such as uh, rabbi and messiah and kephas, which, by the way, is Aramaic. Okay? Um, all right, so what does Peter's name mean? I did a study a, a while back, and I've, I've been writing a book. I don't know how long it's going to be. If it takes me, you know, three years to get through half of John chapter 1, I don't know if I'll ever be able to finish a book. But uh, how many of you have heard of the Trail of Blood? I think we have the pamphlet in the library there. Okay. It kind of shows that there has always been true believers outside of Catholicism and Protestantism. There are those that would like to say that, you know, you're either Catholic or Protestant and that's it. Well, if you say that Catholic and Protestant is all that there ever is, then you're saying at one point the Catholics were the true church. Okay? So I'm writing this book, and I want it to be a, to a Jewish audience and like a Jewish version of the Trail of Blood because a lot of Jewish people, they have this hang-up with Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism has hijacked the name Christian. They've hijacked and a lot of times unknowingly, but they've um, done all these horrible, horrible, horrible things throughout history in the name of Christ. And so I'm trying to write this book in order to be able to, as an evangelistic tool, show a Jewish person that's not what Jesus taught. Let me show you what Jesus taught. Um, and one of the sections in my book is about the Pope. So uh, I figured I wanted to sh share this with you because we get into this, this um, section where Jesus says, you're, you're Simon, but you're, you're going to be called a stone now, okay? Kephas. Uh, what does Peter's name mean? What is a pope? It is the claim that apostolic succession continues with the popes of the Roman Catholic Church unto this day and can be traced all the way back to the apostle Peter, okay? I'm sure we've all heard that, that they claim that Peter is the first pope. Um, is the Roman Catholic Church the true church? Was it ever the true church? Within Christianity, has there only and has there always only been Catholic and Protestant? What did Jesus mean in his famous statement to Peter in Matthew 16, also found in Mark 8 and Luke 9? The answers to all of these questions are of the utmost importance in our quest for the truth. Okay. And you can turn over... Keep your bookmark or finger in the book of John. We'll be back. But let's go over to Matthew chapter 16 just for a, a minute. I have the passage, I think, in that sheet as well. Okay. There's this, um, there's this guy. I don't even know if I can pronounce his name right. Anura Garugi, I don't know, I'm probably like butchering that horribly. But he has a website called Popes and Papacy. Popes-and-papacy.com. He's not at all a, a anti-Catholicism kind of guy. 
I mean, his whole website is devoted to the popes. Who's going to be the next pope? The history of the popes. What this pope did. How this guy is the, I guess Pope Benedict is like the seventh oldest pope now or something. I don't know. But he has all this just, all this information about the popes. He's not at all biased against the Roman Catholic Church. And yet in his statements here in, in, in studying some of these things, we'll find out that uh, it really clears the air about the whole thing about Peter being the first pope. The overriding problem, and this is from his article on the first pope. The overriding problem is that the term pope, in the context it is now used, only became the exclusive prerogative of the Bishop of Rome in the late 4th century during the, during the reign of Siricius, December 384 to November 399. Now, Siricius was the 38th pope, okay? I guess, according to my research. Um, prior to that, the Greek papas and the Latin term papa was commonly used in their original sense to refer to any priest or prelate in much the same way that today's Catholic priests are called father. Okay, so this Latin word papa was used. Um, which, by the way, I find it interesting. Oh, there's multiple passages. Call no man father. You have not many fathers. You know, lots of passages in the scripture that say that you shouldn't do that, but they've done it anyway. Um, okay, it is the retroactive application of this title to those prior to Siricius, in particular the first nine listed as popes, that causes issues. The term pope or an office comparable to that of pope is not mentioned in the Bible, and we know that, but I want us to kind of be educated because, you, I mean, you might not run into a whole lot of Jewish people around here, but you probably run into a couple of Catholics. I know up in Cleveland, basically everybody's either Catholic or Jewish. Um, so, I mean, it was our, our school, okay? I went to a public high school, and it might as well have been a Catholic school. I mean, everybody there was, majority was Italian Catholic. And they had a priest come in from time to time, you know, and do things. On Ash Wednesday, the whole entire school would have that, you know, Ash thing on their head. Um, okay. Um, by the way, I don't think I have it written here, so I'll just tell you um, now. According to history, according to like actual history, the first pope was actually the guy that they say was the tenth pope, and his name was Pius I. He was the first actual singular bishop of Rome whom they say, that's, that's equivalent with Pope. If you're the Bishop of Rome, okay, if you're the, which by the way, Bishop is um, synonymous with pastor, okay? It's not some kind of special hierarchy where we have bishops and cardinals and elders and so on and so forth. Biblically, there's no hierarchy. There's no such thing. It's all overseers, okay? That's what the word Bishop means, overseer. Uh, overseeing the flock as a pastor, exactly the same term. So, the first actual bishop of Rome was this guy, Pius I. He was the first pope, okay, um, in their sense of it. There's some very interesting things that I want to show you as we, as we go on. Because, um, you know, some of that stuff you probably already knew. But I'm going to show you some other stuff that's kind of interesting, too. Um, in order to adequately examine this doctrine, we must first view the famous Matthew 16 passage in its entirety. It is within these very words of Jesus that we find the answer. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 16. 
And I'm going to start with verse 13. Okay, and it's there on your sheet as well. It says, when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Okay, he, he asked them this, this just deep question. Who do men say the son, that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Verse 16, Peter opens up his mouth and answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah. Okay, he's using the Aramaic term there again. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Let's see if I have that all on there. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now there's lots of just really misunderstood things about this whole passage. Um, the crux of this passage is not the person of Peter, nor is it the declaration of who, if anyone, would be the vicar of Christ, okay? This term that the Roman Catholic Church has invented. The focal point is not Peter, but Peter's statement. And I'm sure you've heard that before. If you haven't, Peter's declaration of thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Not upon some guy named Stone, okay? Um, and there's two different words used. So we'll look at that here in, a, in, in detail in a minute. Um, all the way back in the first chapter of John, Peter, or better, Simon, is brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And this is the passage that we looked at. Okay, You can flip back to John chapter 1. Uh, i got to flip forward to it because I'm in Matthew. The passage that we looked at in verses 40 uh, through 42 verse 42 specifically, where Jesus changes Simon's name. When Jesus met Simon, okay, Shimon, one who has heard, Jesus renames him using the Aramaic word for stone, Kephas. So he says to him, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Kephas, which is by interpretation, parentheses, which is by interpretation for all you guys that don't speak Aramaic, that means a stone, okay? Um... This is quite possibly, and this is interesting, this is quite possibly the root form uh, which, from which Caiaphas is, de is derived. You guys all heard of Caiaphas before? Okay, who is he? Was he a good guy or a bad guy? It's, it's very likely that, that Jesus' renaming of Peter, Caiaphas, is the same root word as Caiaphas, okay, the high priest. Similar name, different people. Um, okay, so uh, what is the Greek word for stone? Petros, okay? So like when, when, when John tells, and I want us to kind of grasp this, it's crazy because there's three different words mentioned. There's Simon, okay, his, his given Hebrew name when he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you're not going to be called Simon anymore, but Kephas, 
And John says in Greek, which by interpretation is Peter, okay? Because Peter, Petros, is the word for stone, okay? That's the whole reason why we call him Peter. It's because of John's, which is by interpretation, Peter, okay? Because Peter's the Greek word for kephos. Okay, we all on the same page? Okay. All right, so, after Peter proclaims that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, Jesus responds with, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. You guys ever heard of a bar mitzvah? Or a, you know, okay? Bar is the Aramaic word for son. Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter's statement is also, uh, Peter's statement is the subject that this verse is centered upon. Jesus continues in verse 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay. If we would look into the actual words that Jesus uses in this passage, we would find that Peter is not the rock. Jesus tells Peter, Thou art Petros. Okay? Thou art Petros, a small stone. And upon this Petra, okay, two different words. Lots of times in Hebrew scripture, okay, it's a very Jewish thing to make a play on words, a play on, you know, I mean, God tells Abraham, after Abraham laughs and Sarah laughs, he says, your son is going to be called, he will laugh. It's a very common thing in the Jewish mindset, especially referring to names, to make plays on words. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this verse. He says, you are a stone. Upon this cliff, I'm going to build my church, okay? And he's referencing specifically the statement that Peter made. Not Peter himself. Peter is still Petros. He's still a stone. He never changed. He was a stone. He always is going to be a stone. But the statement, and Christ himself, is called Petra, the, the, the cliff, the boulder, the huge rock, okay? Um, this, is, this is interesting. You probably have heard, how many of you guys have heard that before? The explanation of Peter and, and his name being stone and Petra being a, a large rock, okay? I, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, you probably heard something like that before. What I'm about to show you, you probably haven't heard, okay? So perk up, this is going to be something new, hopefully, to you, okay? This was very interesting to me to find this out. If we want to see the truth of this statement, if, if, if you're talking to somebody that's kind of, you know, on the fence about it or really just does not want to accept that he's not talking about Peter. He's not talking about Peter being the rock that the church is founded on. He's talking about Christ being the son of the living God, being the Messiah. That is the rock right there. Peter wrote some scripture, didn't he? He's not just the subject of certain instances in the Gospels. He spoke in the book of Acts numerous times. His words are recorded for us. And he wrote a couple of epistles, did he not? First Peter, Second Peter, okay? That's the same guy that wrote those. So let's see when he uses the word Petra, who, what, what, he, what's he talks, what he talks about. Okay, I have this passage here for you, and it's, it's from the book of Acts chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people, this is uh, verse 8 of Acts chapter 4, and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done unto this impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, 
Jesus is, uh, Peter is talking to the religious crowd there, um, whom you crucified, whom God hath raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which was become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the stone. Can you take a wild guess? If you look down there, I got some color coding again. Helps me, okay? Take a wild guess at what word Peter uses to refer to Christ. This is, this is the stone. This is the Petra, okay? This was after Matthew 16. And I'm sure that those words that Jesus, I mean, that was a very traumatic thing for Peter. Not only that Jesus would say unto him, blessed are you. I mean, how would you feel? Talking to Jesus and Jesus says, blessed are you, fill in your blank, fill in the name. Uh, you know, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it unto you. I mean, wouldn't you just be like, you have to check and see if you weren't levitating? <laughs> you know, you'd just be so ecstatic that Jesus would say that about you. And then a couple verses later, he calls you Satan. I mean, this event has to be just burned in Peter's mind. He'll never be able to forget that. Either, either instance, which are just a couple verses apart. And here he says to all of these men in the book of Acts chapter 4 that Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this is the Petra. This is the rock. This is the boulder. This is, here in the English, I don't know if you have translated as stone, but it's the word Petra. Okay, um, rock, boulder, cliffside. He also says, second passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, I have there for you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Both stone, okay, the word stone in Acts 4, and rock in, in 1 Peter 2, the green words, okay, the green words, are the Greek word petra. When the word stone is used three times in the 1 Peter passage, it is the Greek word lithos. Okay, so here... Whenever Peter is referring to Jesus, he never uses the term Petros, ever, 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 ever. He refers to Jesus as Petra twice and Lithos three times in 1 Peter chapter 2. So when Peter himself refers to Jesus, he refers to Jesus as the rock. The church is not founded on Peter. It's founded on Jesus. It's founded on the statement that Peter made that Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Uh, Jesus is not referring to Peter as the rock, but is making a play on words using Peter's name. It can even be inferred that Jesus is contrasting Peter as a small stone with a large mass of rock, which is Peter's statement. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. All of this comes from the fact that Jesus called Peter, his name would be Cephas. Okay? So, John tells his Greek-speaking audience, which, by the way, when he said kephos, he's meaning Petros, okay, Peter. The whole mix-up comes from not understanding the truth of Peter's name and how it's a significant thing 
And Jesus uses that significance, okay, uh, to make a play on words in Matthew chapter 16. Um, okay. Um, it was this truth upon which the church would be built, not on a man. It may also be important for us to note that the word church in Matthew 16 is not a reference to a building. Okay, when he says, I will build my church, it's not going to be like, you know, I'm going to lay you as the physical foundation and, and, and build a building with a steeple. He's talking about uh, his group of called out believers, okay, his ecclesia, as the word is there, meaning assembly, um, parallel to the Hebrew word kahal. Interestingly, just a few verses later, I mentioned this, we find Peter rebuking Jesus. Um, you know, in Matthew 16, what does Peter say after Jesus talks about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to die? He says, be it far from thee, Lord. And by the way, the actual translation of that is, pity yourself, Lord. That's what, Je that's what Peter tells him. When, when, when Jesus says, I'm going to go and I'm going to die for the sins of the world, and three days later I'm going to rise again, Peter's, you know, he opens up his mouth once again, except this time it's not good, okay? He says, pity yourself. Have mercy upon yourself. We have the translation, be it far from thee, Lord. I'm not sure if you have something along the lines of pity yourself or, you know, be merciful to yourself. But can you imagine? Can you imagine, Peter, after this high note of, of, of declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, when Jesus says, I'm going to go and die, which is the reason for which he was born, Peter says, pity yourself. I mean, can't you just imagine? No wonder he calls him Satan. That's exactly what Satan wanted to happen. <sighs> Sometimes Satan wants us to do that. You know, when we're, quote, unquote, suffering for the Lord, okay? Um, when you're giving somebody the gospel and somebody sneers at you or somebody just says, no, thank you, in a, in a, in a mean way, you know, you can just almost imagine Satan, you know, come on, you don't have to do this. Pity yourself, you know? And that is just the attitude of Satan. It's the attitude of Satan from the time of Christ. It's the attitude of Satan now. He wants us to just worry about ourselves. Forget about this whole evangelism gospel thing. Um, and so Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. And I have it here. Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Whew. Okay, just as much as I mentioned, if we would have Jesus speaking to us after we make an amazing declaration that blessed are you because, you know, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And the exact opposite feeling for when he says, you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. I mean, I just could not. Peter's had some hard things happen to him in his life. Okay, this is one of them. Denying Christ. Okay, you can just imagine. Cock crowing and he goes out and weeps bitterly. Uh, just an unbelievable thing. So, this instance, I hope, is, is, is cleared up. Not that we really needed it clearing, but I wanted to kind of solidify some things. On top of all these deductions, may it be noted that according to Roman Catholic tradition, the title of Pope evolved out of one single position, the Bishop of Rome. If there claims that Peter was the first Pope, a.k.a. the first Bishop of Rome, then it would only be expected to find a biblical evidence of Peter holding this position. Rome is mentioned nine times in the New Testament, and not a single one of them has any connection with Peter. 
if Peter was the first pope, if Peter was the bishop of Rome, okay, and this is just completely aside from the uh, amazing evidence that it's not even referring to Peter, that pope is not even a thing, but if he, if, if there was any connection, you would expect to find Peter in Rome. You would expect to find Peter having connections with Rome. You would expect to have Peter writing about being in Rome or writing to others that are in Rome and just all these different things connecting Peter to Rome, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, how do Catholics attempt to circumvent this lack of evidence? They allege that as Peter is giving his salutations at the end of First Peter, he mentions being in Babylon, which he really means is Rome. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's, that's, the, like, that's all they have to link Peter with being the first pope. Not to mention, they get the whole thing about whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and so on and so forth. Uh, they get it backwards. Um, once again, you know, translations are not necessarily what they could be, what they should be. But that passage where it talks about in Matthew 16, this is a little bit of a continued rabbit trail, but when he talks about whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in, in heaven, uh, there's, a, there's an incorrect tense that's translated there. What it really says in the Greek is whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be as having been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be as having been loosed in heaven. It's basically saying that heaven is going to affect what you do. You're not going to affect what heaven does. And it's getting the whole cart before the horse. It's flipping things around being backwards. Um, I have a note that I wrote down. Uh, I don't know why I didn't write it on my, on my sheet there. Okay. Um, what God decides upon in heaven is emulated and carried out by the church. That's what this means. And it's been so twisted around. Um, you know, there's different occasions in the Bible where certain things tend to have a certain skew to them because of the church fathers and the tradition that's gone on before, and we just can't break away from that. When in reality, the scripture as it was given tells a different story. Um, that's why I think it's so important to be able to look into those things. Yes? Yeah, and, 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 you know, the Catholic Church, and if we're not careful looking at these things, if we don't look at them in the correct manner, I mean, having the Holy Spirit within you does a, does a world of difference when you're looking at Scripture. But they want to have control. They want to be the ones that tell God what to do and hold over people's heads. I'm going to excommunicate you. I'm going to deny you last rites. You're not going to be able to go to heaven because you're going to be outside of the Church of Rome. When in reality, God says, I tell you what to do. And the church is going to emulate whatsoever thou, thou shalt bind on earth, you know, loose on earth, shall be has already having been bound or loosed in heaven. God is going to decree something, okay? Um, God has, there's a passage that says God has, you know, he does whatever so, he wills. He declares in heaven, and, it's, and that's it. End of story. It's done. Uh, so to think that we as, as men, okay, um, the only time that I see anything that's even remotely similar to that, and it's not really even at all, but we can limit God by our unbelief. The Bible says that you limited the Holy One of Israel by your unbelief. 
there's in no way, shape, or form that we're going to do something that overrides God's power. We're not going to be able to decide this, that, or the other thing and make it be so in the heavens. It's the other way around. God decrees, like for instance, okay, God decreed that his will for me would be in July of 2015 to move from Ohio to here in order to serve God here out of this headquarters. And so it took a while to get it through my stubborn head and what to do and how to do it. And, it, you know, I ended up carrying it through. But I did not decree that and God says, okay, let me write that down since you've decreed that that would be so. It's the reverse. Whatsoever God decrees in heaven is going to be emulated by the church. God wanted the church to reach the world with the gospel. He gave the Great Commission. Okay, Jesus said, go ye therefore and you know, baptize all nations, uh, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. So um, and there's also, you shall be witnesses unto me, unto the uttermost, okay, beginning at Jerusalem. Those are things that God decreed that the church would thereby afterwards follow through with. The church didn't come up with some idea, and then God says, okay, let me pencil that in. It's the other way around. God makes the decree, and the church emulates it or carries it out when they're sensitive to his leading and his will. Um, ugh, unbelievable. And, you know, Jesus' rebuke of Peter when he says, you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men, that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church has done. Um, if you want sometime, um, we have a library over there and you can check out books. I have some books in my office and if you, if you write a note, a sticky note, leave it on my desk if I'm not there, okay? But I have a, a book called The Dark History of the Roman Catholic Church and another book called The Dark History of the Popes. <laughs> it's crazy. It's horrible, horrible, horrible stuff that has happened all throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it's worse than the Mafia. Much, much, much worse than the Mafia. Um, so, no, it's okay. No, I'm serious. They had, they had people killed. They had people, they had, you know, it's like the kings of old, they would kill their brethren, okay? They would kill their own families so that they wouldn't have any competition for the throne. Popes have done the same thing for people that were in line to be the next pope. And uh, just all kinds of promiscuity you know, having children from many, many, many women out of wedlock with all these women. Um, it's, it's, it's worse than I can mention from this, from this table, okay? They say we're not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And they think that they're in charge, but they're not. And they're going to get a rude awakening one day. Okay. All right, so um, let's turn the page, Okay. The last couple of verses of John chapter 1, okay, that was a, a bit of a digression dealing with verse 42 and Peter. Okay, so verse 43, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, follow me. Okay, so, so far, Jesus has John and Andrew and Peter, and then he goes to Galilee and he meets Philip. And he says unto Philip, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now there's a couple things that I want to say about Bethsaida. 
Okay, the name of the city, which is apparently the town of Peter's origin, though not his current dwelling. In uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 29, if you want to mark it down, Mark chapter 1, verse 29, it talks about how Peter's house, okay, his current dwelling, is in Capernaum. Okay, Peter's house is in Capernaum. So when it says Bethsaida was the city of Andrew and Peter, it's apparently the town of his origin, okay? Maybe where he was born and grew up. Um, and also, I don't know if you've ever had a problem with this, but I have a problem with this, okay? There's two different cities, Bethsaida and Bethesda, okay? <laughs> we get them confused. And lots of times, if you look at things, I, I, I don't know if, if I do this too much, but it helps me. If I look into the original languages, it's a lot easier to differentiate. Like, for instance, we got Elijah and Elisha. How many times have you heard a preacher say something about Elisha, and you think he's saying Elijah, and you just get confused? I have a hard time, okay? I am a Yankee. I am from the north. And down here, you know, sometimes I, I have a pastor, okay, whom I love to death, but he speaks very, he speaks very uh, quickly sometimes. Uh, and sometimes my ears aren't as, as fast. So we have Elijah and Elisha. If you look in the Hebrew, it's Eliyahu and Elisha. They're very different, okay? How many of you know a girl named Elisha? I have a niece named Elisha. That's how it's pronounced. Elisha, okay? And then we have Eliyahu. So the same thing is with Bethesda and um, Bethsaida, okay? In the Hebrew... It's Bet Tzeda. Bet Tzeda. And the other one, Bethesda, uh, is Bet Chesda. So Bet Chesda and Bet Tzeda. I don't know. Anyway, I don't, it's, it's just hard with the TH sound in there. You know, when I was looking this up, when I was looking this up, the first thing that would come up with was like, you know, some video game developer and Maryland. And I'm thinking, this is not what I'm, you know, looking for. So um, anyway, <laughs> all right, so, so but Chesda, how many of you ever heard of Chesed? Chesed, Chesed, okay, loving kindness, grace, okay. But Chesda, house of grace, but Tzeda, House of hunters, okay, or house of hunting or fishing, okay. Um, um, Bethesda, Bethesda is in Jerusalem. Bethsaida is in Galilee, okay, and I have it right there on the map, okay, that fancy graphic there that shows you where Bethsaida is. Um, okay, where the impotent man was healed, Bethesda, not Bethsaida, which is the town that we're speaking of, the town of Andrew and Peter. Okay. Are we all thoroughly confused? Worse off than we were before I started. Okay. <laughs> Verse 45. We're just going to acknowledge that and move on. Okay. Verse 45. Philip findeth Nathanael. Okay. So, so far we have John and Andrew. Andrew goes to find his brother Peter. Okay. Simon. And then we have Philip. And Philip goes and finds Nathanael, okay? And saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said unto him, Come and see. You remember a couple of weeks ago, Mark was talking about um, the prophecy where it says he would be called a Nazarene. Okay? Remember how he, he, he showed us how that signifies that he would be despised? Nazareth was like, you know, not really a very popular place. Okay? Um, I know Ken Symes, the former director here, he's our missionary in Florida. He talks about how uh, Buffalo, New York, is a good place to be from, meaning you're not there anymore. Okay, it's, 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 it's kind of a similar thought, okay, people, except you don't want to even be from Nazareth, okay. Um, I heard somebody say recently, forgive me if it was here, I think it was at our church, or somewhere, somebody said the best thing to come out of West Virginia was I-64 or something like that. <laughs> the, best, the best thing to come out of West Virginia was I-64, so you, so you could get out of there, I guess, I don't know. Um, I don't have anything against West Virginia, but I'm just trying to make a, a, a similarity, okay? It's like if somebody said, can anything good come out of Anger? Okay, it's like the Messiah is from Anger, you know? Um, it's a similar thought. Nathaniel is kind of skeptic, but then Philip says, come and see. It's interesting, those same words were just a couple of verses back when Jesus says to Andrew and John, come and see. So, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. Okay, verse number 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith unto him, saith of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Wouldn't you like to have that said about you? Okay? Behold an American who is not deceitful. <laughs> okay? Uh, in whom is no guile. Uh, Jesus knew that Nathanael's heart was sincere. Okay, Jesus could tell. Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew the thoughts of those that murmured, you know, when Jesus healed the paralytic man. Those that were in the room, they had thoughts that only God can forgive sins. You know, he knew their thoughts. He knew Nathaniel's thoughts. He knew his heart. He knew that he did not have guile within him or deceit. Um, Nathaniel, Nathanael, means gift of God. Okay. Nathanael saith unto him, verse number 48, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, I, you were under the fig tree, and I saw thee. Um, isn't that amazing? Before Philip even came to Nathanael and said, You know, we have found him, Jesus said, I knew, I knew you were sitting under the fig tree. Um, now, some might look at this and say, Well, is this, is this condemnation? You know, is he saying that? I saw what you were doing under the fig tree, you know, or, I, you know, something that was not right. That's not at all the case because Nathaniel is told in the previous verse that he's an Israelite in whom is no guile. Okay? It's just a statement of, of an, um, not condemnation but of fact. Before Philip called thee when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathaniel answered and said unto him, and this is, this is really amazing, given that everything we just looked at in Matthew 16 and, and dealing with Peter and so on, Look at what Nathaniel says, all the way back here in John chapter 1. Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Amazing statement. It kind of lines up with Peter's, Peter's declaration. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nathaniel says, uh, thou art the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. 
I mean, I don't know. I'm really wanting a time machine right now to be able to be there and experience some of these things as we're reading them. It's just so amazing to think about Jesus talking to you and saying, you're going to see greater things than this. Um, he says in verse 51, and guess what verse 51 is? The end of the chapter. Okay. Verse 51, he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, after, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The stress of hereafter is from this point forward. So he's not saying like, you know, in the hereafter. He's saying from this point forward, Nathaniel, you're going to see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. When he says, you shall see heaven opened, regarding Nathaniel, okay, it will most likely be figurative. This carries the idea that Nathaniel would see the evidence of the heavens opening in the earthly ministry of Christ. The statement that Jesus makes next most certainly refers to Jacob's ladder seen in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 16. And I have it right here for us, Genesis chapter uh, 28, the account here in, in verses 10 through 16. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. He took of the stones of that place and put them uh, for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. And the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. This is a note from Barnes Notes on the Bible. Sometimes... I read commentators, and I agree with them. Sometimes I don't. Um, I don't know. I guess that's why in you know, the rabbinical writings, there's so many different opinions. You can just pick and choose which one <laughs> you like. But I like what Barnes has to say about it here. It summarizes it up nicely. By their ascending and descending upon him, it is probable that he meant that Nathaniel would have evidence that they came to his aid and that he would have the kind of protection and assistance from God which would show more fully that he was the Messiah. Thus his life, his many deliverances from dangers, his wisdom to confute his, to confute his skilled and cunning adversaries, the scenes of his death, and the attendance of angels at his resurrection may all be represented by the angels descending upon him, and all would show to Nathaniel and the other disciples most clearly that he was the Son of God. So he's saying, buckle up, Nathaniel. You're going to see some amazing things. You're going to see maybe not physically with your own eyes, but you're going to see the evidence of the heavens being opened, angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. You're going to see miracles. You're going to see things that could only be possible if I truly was, as your declaration stated, the Son of God, the King of Israel. So I'm excited as we move forward. It may be six months from now when we get into John chapter 2. But, uh, but that'll give me time to prepare, and you can expect a really good lesson, I hope. <laughs> or else I'll be in trouble if I had six months to prepare, and it was a, you know. 
Any comments or, or, or questions? Yes. I'm not an authority on that, but I would, I would, I would guess. Yeah. Is that what a lith lithography, lithograph, is that a stone tablet like where you write on? <laughs> What's that? Okay. Do they use a stone to do it? Hmm. But that's all, that's all it means in Greek is stone. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, Pope Pius? I'm not sure. Now, he wasn't necessarily called the Pope, okay? The term Pope didn't originate until the fourth century, okay? 380-something uh, to 399. But, but they're saying that this guy, Pope Pius, was, who is the tenth in the list of, the, the official list of popes that the Catholic Church has compiled. He's number 10. But he was the very first person that was actually the bishop, the bishop of Rome. And that's not saying he was a pope. He was just, he was, he was the guy. He was the pastor. Instead of having a plurality of, 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 of elders within that city, they had one bishop to look to, and that was this guy, Pius. I'm not sure exactly when, but he wasn't called the pope. That was a retroactive application of that term by the 38th pope. <laughs> the, the 38th pope. So there you go. Yes? So um, in Jesus' statement to Peter, mm -hmm. okay, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of them. You see, the followers of Jesus at that time did not understand this, what he was telling them, that he was going to suffer and die. Right? They fully, he was the Messiah. Okay? The Messiah doesn't suffer and die. Well, that depends. And at least to them. Yeah. yeah. Right? And um, they fully expected that he was going to overthrow the Romans. Yeah. Right? And well, he was going to set up the, the kingdom. Mm -hmm. This was going to become a great nation. Yeah. Yeah, you remember the, um, the two on the road to Emmaus? And they said, we trusted that he was going to be the one to deliver Israel, you know. So there was this messianic expectation that he was going to deliver them physically from, from militarily from Rome. Um, but also, numerous times, Jesus told them, I'm going to go and, and, and going to die, and you're all going to forsake me and, and flee. And Peter himself, I'm, I don't turn the reference, but he says, though all men leave thee, yet I will not forsake thee. And he says something along the lines of, even unto death, I will not leave thee, you know? Um, but yeah, go on. If you, were you going to, are we just making a statement? Well, I was going to say, uh, your comment about the Catholic Church and the book you read, The Dark Side of the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Mark gave me a book called Constantine's Sword. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read that book? Yes, actually, I'm using it in the book that I, yeah, I have a copy as well. Um, mm -hmm. I recommend anybody who wants to read it. It's a hard read, though. Yeah. Okay, but it's, it gives the history of the Catholic Church and its persecution of the Jews mm -hmm. through the centuries, all the way from the beginning of the church up to the heart. Yep, yep. And one of the things about Carol's, um, is it John Carroll? Something Carroll, um, the guy that wrote Constantine's Sword. 
he's from a Roman Catholic background, obviously he is a priest. So although he has a very good, accurate rendition of all those things, and I haven't read a whole lot of it, but from what I've read, there are some statements in his book, even though it is very good and you know, historically accurate for the most part, at least regarding the persecutions, regarding the history of the early church, he applies Roman Catholic tradition that did not exist okay, at the time to like first century believers. Okay? Um, the idea that they were, I, I'll have to get you the quote, but there's a quote from his book that uh, he applies how at such and such point, I don't know if he said it was 100 or 150, he says something along the lines of the first century church, the church, uh, the early church began to closely resemble the Roman Catholic Church and its practices and teachings, which simply is not true. Um, but uh, I mean, what, what can you expect if, if they're not coming from a biblical perspective and he's biased that those things are true, it, it, it slightly comes through. But again, I haven't read much of it to be able to say that. But I know Mark does highly recommend it. Yes? I got two points to make. One thing I've uh, used in talking with Catholics is uh, how Jesus said in the Revelation, I have the key of David, I am he that opens and no man shuts. Mm -hmm. And I shut and no man opens. That contradicts the claim of the Pope and uh, that, that Peter had that power. Yep. Then the other point I want to make is literally Jesus Christ was a Protestant when he protested the rabbinical teaching of Corban. You know how he said, Moses said you shall honor your father and your mother, but you say, and it was just a protest, and it was a protest against supplanting the word of God with rabbinical or priest, you know, teaching, putting that. He said, oh, you full well or outright reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Well, that's exactly what Protestantism means to me with regard to the Catholic Church. Okay. It's, it's where the, the tradition of man supplants the word of God when you've got it right here in the scripture, just like they had Moses. Sure. But also, um, the, the, the specific term Protestant refers to those who, from the Protestant church, protested its teachings and either were kicked out of it, in the case of Martin Luther, or voluntarily left it. Um, a Protestant, in a general sense of the term, I mean, you could say he was a protester. You know, he protested, but I wouldn't say that, you know, Jesus was a Presbyterian or a or an Anglican, or, you know, whatever you want to... You know, I was just saying, literally, he was a Protestant in that he protested this... this I understand. I understand. He certainly, he certainly did protest the common religious teachings of the day. Were there Baptists already in existence then, at the time of Martin Luther? Yes, I believe so. And there's, like, Moravians, you know, there's Carthers. protested against the Catholic Church. There were other people... Other groups that were biblically based, mm -hmm. such as where, because my understanding is the only true Protestants are the Lutherans and the Episcopalians. Okay. Like Baptists and everybody else are off of the Anabaptists. Mm -hmm. So therefore, like Baptists are not true Protestants. That's my. That's my. You know, if they didn't come out of the Catholic Church, I would not call them Protestants. And, and, and there's, a, there's a common conception, misconception, that there is, if you're a Christian, you're either a Catholic or a Protestant. 
you know. Um, what's the, what, you know, WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, or, you know, now they have the term evangelical in there, which is a little bit different, but there's trying to say that there's evangelical Catholics, <laughs> you know, if you've heard the term, it's crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to say that there's only Catholics and Protestants is also saying that, well, then at one point, because if they came out of the Catholics, then at one point the Catholic Church was the true church, and it never was. The origin of the Catholic Church wasn't at, you know, 33 AD. The origin of the Catholic Church, as well documented in Constantine's sword, was like 313, you know, within the 4th century that Roman Catholic Church came into existence. Yes? And this other point I was making was, I wanted to make was about the um, disciples not knowing that Jesus was to die. But it seemed that I was understood that the angel Gabriel, when speaking of, quote, Messiah the Prince, then said he will be cut off or killed, yeah. but not for himself. Exactly. So if you put that together with what Isaiah said about he made his grave, although that doesn't say Messiah necessarily, but we know that. So Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. Yeah, so we know you can't get more clear than that. We, we know who that was, but they might not have, you know, uh, used that same word. But, but Messiah the Prince, Gabriel. Yeah, well, I'll put it this way. Jesus was very gracious with his disciples because they should have known, they should have known, they should have known, and he said it and said it and said it and said it and said it. And here he doesn't give, he, is, he doesn't give Peter any, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things that are of God, but the things that are of men. Yes? No. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's things, I mean, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but they had Jesus. So, so you know, I mean, when you look at, at, at Jesus, how, how gracious he is, he understands that. He knows that, you know. On other occasions, like when um, Jesus comes to them in the fourth watch of the night, um, and they're just, they're trembling, they're fearful, he says, why were you so fearful? Where is your faith? You know, so at the same time, he doesn't just, you know, say what they want to hear, um, but he is gracious with them as well. And, you know, I mean, when you see after the resurrection, you know, Jesus says, you know, go tell, go tell Peter, you know. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's amazing um, to see how Jesus worked with them and how he works with us, you know. Constantine's sword, that was the one. That was the one that Mark is familiar with. Yeah, um, the dark, dark history of the Catholic Church and the dark history of the popes or something like that. I don't know exactly. But, uh, but they're very, very eye-opening books. Um, and in case I forget, okay, afterwards if people want to purchase or reserve Passover tickets, we'll have a short time after the Bible study where I'll be, you know, Taking care of that. So, um, yes? When I have studied John in the past, and I think in this first part, as I went through it, and then when I found out as Jewish people did at that time, they would stand up on a certain Sabbath and read certain scriptures. Mm -hmm. And that scripture's been read from the Old Testament, of course, uh, by the Jewish people on the same Sabbath for thousands of years. 
And, um, you know, as I read this, I thought, well, well, what if Philip, I mean, what if Nathaniel, when he was under that fig tree, which some commentary, I'm not sure if it's in this Bible here, but another commentary I read could, could have meant that he was, he was studying, he was praying, he was whatever. Something good. In that place. Yeah. And maybe, maybe Jesus used this as an example to take him back to the Old Testament scripture, possibly even one he had heard a few Sabbaths before, or maybe it was in the coming up Sabbath, mm -hmm. and maybe just took him back there. I thought the same thing about Nicodemus. Yeah. Because this would be have to be, if he's three and a half years into his ministry when he's put to death, this has to be in the fall. When he's, when he's doing this. Three and a half years pre forward, or even the next spring, would have been when he was back in Jerusalem for the Passover when he met with uh, Nicodemus. And in Nicodemus, he takes him back to Numbers 21, mm -hmm. I think it is, and tells him about the snake on the, on the pole. Yeah. So I'm thinking the same thing there. You know, maybe, maybe he says, okay, you know, Nicodemus, you're the master of Israel, and you don't know what I'm saying. Let me take you back here to what you heard last Sunday or, or last Sabbath or whatever. So it's kind of interesting. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe this one right here, this this scripture from Genesis lines up with like the end of September or something, as best I could find it. Genesis 28. As they read it through, I don't know, what's that, what's that called? The, the Torah reading and the half Torah reading, H-A-F Torah. Yeah. One of them, and I, I, one time I looked it up, and I, I think I may have asked you the question before. But it's, it's, I just thought it very interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of times uh, when we go to church and we hear scripture or we study, then something will happen or someone will, you know, the pastor will speak on the same scripture the next Sunday and kind of ties it together. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe Jesus was teaching. You, never you know, that would be interesting. And um, not, not to steal my own thunder, but in the end of the book of John, there's a statement that if the, I think it's in John, if all the books could be written of things that have transpired, the world itself couldn't contain them. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out all of these amazing things, and I don't doubt that, that that's true. That would be really, um, you know, there's no coincidences with God, and uh, oftentimes Jesus used as illustrations whatever was currently going on or happening many, many times. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. That's a neat, neat thought. You'll have to remind me when we get to heaven and we'll go up and, and ask Nathaniel, what were you reading under the tree? Any, any, any other questions? Yes? So was the first original church actually founded by James in Jerusalem? Because I've had, years back I had a Catholic tell me that the first church was Catholic when it was founded in Rome. No. <laughs> yeah, the church wasn't founded in Rome. Um, when we see in Scripture, we see two main churches that were centers, okay? Jerusalem, beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where Pentecost happened. Jerusalem was, is where the church was birthed. The church at Jerusalem, in which James was one of the elders, okay, the pastor. And then we have the church up in Antioch, okay? And those two churches became hubs or centers for evangelism, um, we see, obviously, Paul writes the epistle to the churches in Rome, but we don't really see a whole lot regarding things coming out of there or going in, except for stuff that's not really that good, <laughs> you know, because uh, there was a lot of persecution coming out of Rome. So was James 
Well, we know that James was the pastor or the elder or one of the elders at, of the church at Jerusalem. Okay. We know that. Um, how that all came to be, I don't know exactly, but that's basically where it all started was in Jerusalem. Yeah? Yes? Okay, so um, just one more comment on that book. Sure. Costume Story. Mm -hmm. Okay. The author, James Carroll, uh, starting uh, at the very origin of the persecution of the Jews, mm -hmm. okay, looks at the term called the Jews. Okay. okay. And that term is used in the Gospel of John more than any other gospel or any other book in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. okay. He points to that as being the origin of anti-Semitism. Hmm. Okay. Now, whether you agree with that or not, I'm just saying this. Uh, when the term the Jews is used, okay, who is it referring to? Is referring to the Jewish people to a, to an audience outside of the Jewish people. So, like for instance, in John chapter eight, when it says that there was a certain group of Jews which believed, and Jesus was talking to them. Okay, and we'll get there. I don't know in ten years or something, but uh, it it goes on to designate for us that really those Jews they weren't true believers. They were just maybe acknowledging mentally that, okay, we think that maybe you're the guy, we think that we're, we're, we're on board with what you're saying right now, but as soon as Jesus says, you should know the truth and the truth should make you free, they say, how are you saying we need to be made free? We're Abraham's seed. And this, this whole thing, anyway, when it refers to the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, it's not an anti-Semitic term, not at all. It's no more than saying, you know, uh, somebody, somebody, over in, I don't know, Wisconsin, about those Andrites or those North Carolinians, <laughs> you know, uh, those Tar Heels, you know. I mean, not necessarily a term like that, but it's basically designating, this is referring to the Jewish people, okay. Um, as John's Gospel, as we have seen, is it very, 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 very Jewish, but it's also towards a worldwide audience that is outside of the Jewish people. That's why he has to say, which being interpreted is Christ, which being interpreted is Peter. Right. So, well, because, you know, there were many different sects of the Jewish religion. Mm -hmm. You had the Pharisees and Sadducees that you know about, but there were, there were many others uh, other than those people. Well, if you look in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. So I don't think there's any intricacy or any kind of delineation between this group or that group, good guys or bad guys. It's just the Jewish people, is my, is my understanding. And I think we'll, we'll definitely, that'll come to a head as we go through the book of John, because like you said, we are going to see that term used a lot. Anybody else? Okay, I think the refreshments are waiting back there to, being, to be released. So I'll go ahead and close in a, in a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll be done. Okay. Thank you, Lord, so much for this. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. 
if you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.